I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. If you're a regular listener of Pitchfork Economics, you know that we spend an awful lot of time tearing down the dominant neoliberal paradigm while constructing a new narrative that we think better describes how the economy really works. But a new paper by Kyle Strickland and Felicia Wong of the Roosevelt Institute argues that critiquing neoliberalism isn't enough. According to Strickland and Wong, if we want to take racial justice seriously, we need to acknowledge that race and the economy are inextricably linked. And that means ending the era of racial liberalism that has worked hand-in-hand hand with neoliberalism to sustain our nation's indefensible levels of income and wealth inequality between the races, and particularly between white and black households. I talked with Strickland about what racial liberalism is, and how, by pretending that the market is colorblind, it plays a central role in perpetuating racial inequality. I hope you find the conversation as informative and instructive as I did. My name is Kyle Strickland. I'm the Deputy Director of Race and Democracy at the Roosevelt Institute, a think tank dedicated to advancing economic uh, democracy uh, for the many, not the few, and want to highlight our new report, which is a new paradigm for justice and democracy, moving beyond the twin failures of neoliberalism and racial liberalism, and how we can create a more just, equitable society and a more multiracial, inclusive democracy. For our audience, if you could just lay out the main thesis uh, to start, that would be useful. Of course. So. What we talk about in this report is really about how, for the past 50 years, the fight for racial justice in our country has really been weakened by an individualistic, race-neutral, kind of colorblind conception of access and opportunity um, within a society that has been largely dominated by neoliberal economics. So this idea that um, we are going to have the market as the solution to all of our problems, and uh, the rest is going to trickle down to the rest of us. When we know that that actually has not created the shared prosperity, and as a result, what has happened has been a society that has failed to reckon with the legacy of racism in this country. And we silo the issue of racial justice with, from economic justice, and we have to talk about the two because they are connected. Uh, race and the economy are connected, and these are stories that we have to tell together. And we're ultimately arguing that right now we're living in an era of the failure of those two paradigms, one paradigm of neoliberalism, but also this paradigm around racial liberalism. That's simply talking about access and opportunity without systems of racial inequality, racial injustice is not going to get us to where we need to be. And in order to build a more powerful, equitable, inclusive democracy, we have to take this head on, and, and especially with growing authoritarianism that we're seeing right now, and especially uh, with white supremacist threats and backlash. And so it requires us to take bold action, um, which we're seeing within the racial justice movement today, um, but now we have to see that within our mainstream politics. I, I think we need to start with some definitions here. You talk about neoliberalism, which we talk about a lot on the podcast. Uh, we spend a lot of time critiquing it and uh, building up an alternative narrative. But you also talk about racial liberalism. So I, I want to start at the root. Let, what do you mean by liberalism? And is the liberalism in these two terms the same thing? 
So we, we tell the story of racial liberalism and neoliberalism together. Um, but yes, they, they come out of the same branch around uh, the sense of liberalism and how we tell the stories. And we especially tell this kind of within the stories of the 30s and 40s, kind of this um, New Deal era sense of American governance about how which society would provision um, public goods uh, for individuals, and especially within the context around communities of color and racial justice. And so it's really a matter of the impacts of government versus the impacts of markets. And instead of just focusing on uh, the econ economic side of things, we also focus on through a lens of race. And so it is this, this general same concept around liberalism, uh, but we actually, we, we tend to have the argument and conversation about neoliberalism that usually silos uh, the conversation around race and racial uh, injustice. Right, because the 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 notion with uh, neoliberalism is that the market is is colorblind. If yes. we just like have economic freedom, that'll solve the problem all by itself. So so we don't need to have any sort of interventionist policies uh, in terms of race. Just let the market handle it. Yes, exactly. So basically, we we define racial liberalism as really developing within kind of this this market based framework especially within, within the late uh, 50s and 60s, where effectively the idea was that, well, if the market's gonna solve our problems, then it will compete away discrimination. And so as mm -hmm. a result, then that's not a problem that we have to worry about. And so what ended up happening is really in the mainstream conception of, of just thinking about racism in this country, or racial inequality in this country, for the past 50, 60 years, it has really been about well, we are going to disavow personal bigotry. So individual overt mm -hmm. acts of discrimination, you know, those are things that ha have no uh, being in regard within our body politic. But this approach, this colorblind approach, actually ignores the role of racialized systems, unequal structures that actually perpetuate domination and justice. And so they actually work in tandem with the project right. around neoliberalism. So it's not just that this this approach on individual racism doesn't address the problem, it helps perpetuate it, you argue. Exactly. And when you continue to look at um, these issues solely through the, the lens of individual forms of, of personal bias or uh, personal bigotry, uh, it actually perpetuates discrimination because it it ignores uh, the larger systemic forces at play uh, that perpetuate in inequality over, over time. I'm curious, when you set out at the start of this project, how much of this, um, this paradigm shift did you ha already have in mind? And what was the methodology in terms of, of deconstructing the issue and, and coming up with uh, uh, the report that you developed? Yeah, so this project really builds on Roosevelt's work over the past five years or so on really thinking about how we rewrite the rules of our economy uh, for the 21st century. A lot of the work we've been doing around post-neoliberalism, uh, and really the, the, this started with our project uh, that has Felicia Wong, my co-author, really helped spearhead and lead with a, a table of different partners that are really thinking about, you know, what, what does the world look like in an after neoliberalism space? What does that post neoliberalism world look like? And what we did was really started out with a landscape of 
what various thinkers, uh, organizers, uh, public intellectuals, academics were really thinking about racial inequality and what the solutions are uh, to address some of these massive disparities, right? So we start with the premise that um, neoliberalism has failed, that this, this paradigm has not resulted in the shared prosperity that mm-hmm. um, its adherents set it out it, to do. And so as a result, what is in its place? And as we've been developing this work as it relates to neoliberalism and the different approaches, not only to analyze how we got here, but what do those solutions look like moving forward? One of the analysis that we see often missing uh, in the conversation around economics is really this concept around racial stratification, um, really looking at, at um, these issues through a racial equity lens, looking at uh, structural racism and its impacts on where we are today. And so we wanted to actually do a landscape that more forcefully centered the role of racial equity. Um, and that's where we, we took over about a year, uh, really spending research over 200 thinkers and organizers um, to really think about how they view the economy, how they view our democracy, and what the path forward looks like uh, to building more racially equitable society. Uh, so it was a lot of reading, a lot, a lot of writing, um, but we helped to kind of think through different ways to categorize how people think about these issues. So one, um, are they more incremental uh, focused? Or are they more transformative in their focuses? What are their theories of change and theories of power look like? And then that's ultimately how we settled on uh, our focus of this, of this project, which is about both tying in our economy, but also our, our democracy. I'm curious whether uh, my, you know, my recent reading list cast the sum of us, uh, the whiteness of wealth, uh, the 9.9%. Is, uh, is that just coincidentally that I've been reading a lot of these ideas from a lot of different authors, or is there a new consensus emerging? What we're seeing is a, is a new consensus. Um, we are actually seeing a, a really nice kind of symbiotic combination of, of different thinkers, scholars, organizers, activists who are really thinking about these problem, problems in a way um, that is cohering around a new vision. Um, one that says that uh, the colorblind uh, approach uh, to our politics and our policy making uh, not only does not work, but it actually continues to perpetuate the injustices that we see. And we need transformative solutions. It's an approach that says we have to tackle and dismantle structural racism uh, by taking white supremacy, the patriarchy head on um, with the types of not only policy solutions, um, but policy approaches um, to our challenges. And so this thinking is really coming together and is starting to go cohere around a worldview that is about a multiracial, multi-ethnic, inclusive democracy, which is directly counter uh, to this white supremacist uh, racist backlash that we're seeing today. Um, and especially over the last five to seven years with the movement for Black Lives has really pushed a lot of these ideas that were once deemed radical um, into the mainstream um, so that everybody is, are, are talking about these issues on, on various scales, uh, regardless of background. So, so I think you just answered my next question, which was going to be why now? Exactly. Exactly. Well, I mean, it, and, and not only not only is it, it coming together because of, of a movement on the ground, but it's also coming together because we are in, in this era um, where the, the old paradigms uh, no longer work to explain 
the problems and the challenges that we're facing. Um, and we have also seen an increasingly diverse coalition of Americans coming together to push against these old systems and saying that uh, this is not working um, and we have to do something about it. And so uh, these are all issues that are coming together. The question though is that, uh, will we take the threats that we are facing uh, seriously enough? And I, I worry that not everybody sees the threats to our democracy as, uh, as threatening as they actually are, uh, which will be the demise and peril of our democracy if we don't take these threats seriously. I wonder, and I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to be too disheartening, but uh, are our democratic institutions strong enough to overcome this period? What with the, the profound anti-democratic structure of the U.S. Senate and the Electoral College and uh, the Republican grip on state legislatures and their, uh, their ability to gerrymander and suppress the vote. Is it too late? <laughs> I don't think it's too late. And I think there are still uh, some very real fights that uh, we need to have. Um, but it's, it's, it may be too late, right? It, it could very well be too late. I think 2020 was a flashpoint to see uh, what the road ahead looks like in 22 and 24, that if we do not act with urgency, um, then we could lose our democracy. We're already mm -hmm. seeing the unraveling of our democracy. We have seen our institutions that were set up in ways that have enabled these anti-democratic attacks that really, you know, the, the security and stability of these institutions, a lot of them were, were based on the norms we have in our society and the norms to hold these institutions together. But when you see uh, ideologues and, and demagogues coming together to just erode norm after norm, and when there's no accountability for uh, eroding these norms, uh, then there will be no line uh, that will, they will stop at. And so I think for Democrats, for progressives, for those who believe in democracy, um, they actually have to do more than just uh, saying rhetoric, that's not enough. You have to make uh, transformative structural changes, one of which obviously, if you're talking about the anti-majoritarian anti features of the US Senate, uh, would be the filibuster. You have to end or certainly reform the filibuster because what we're seeing now are state legislatures across the country that are rolling back uh, rights that should be federally protected with simple majorities, and yet it takes a supermajority uh, to uh, secure and codify those rights. When you have that system set up and then you have a system of governance which uh, uh, the president doesn't get elected even if you're getting the popular vote, uh, that is a system for permanent minority rule and ultimate disaster uh, for our democracy and for our country. But we can still stop it, uh, but we are running out of time. Right, so that's a, that's a good uh, first step into the specifics of uh, uh, the type of uh, policies we need to pursue in addition to the democracy side of it, more democracy. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, what else do we need to focus on? So we need to look at material equity. And, and we talk about this a lot in, in our report, which is really, it, it goes at the heart of this neoliberal notion of, of just increased access and opportunity was going to be enough uh, to bring about uh, economic equality. When we know that access and opportunity alone is not sufficient. Um, we are seeing a vast inequality 
vast economic insecurity, especially that has been exacerbated by this uh, pandemic, both the health and economic tolls of this pandemic. And that's why we're seeing more and more scholars talk about wealth and especially racialized wealth and the ability to uh, build wealth over time. And so our focus is really on how do we actually build more equitable material outcomes so that true equity isn't just about you know, accepting that there's a promise of opportunity within a mm -hmm. system that continues to exclude, it actually means a more equitable distribution of resources, um, especially when wealth continues to be extracted from some. And so, you know, you see scholars uh, like De Derek Hamilton and others who talk about baby bonds and federal job guarantees, guaranteed incomes. These are the types of transformative proposals uh, that will help not only uh, uh, cut into the racial wealth gap, but we'll also even the playing field when it comes to wealth inequality in this country. Yeah, you know, your your report mentions one of my pet peeves. You quote President Obama, his line about ladders of opportunity. I hate that line. I've always <laughs> hated that line. This idea that a quality of opportunity is what we should be focusing on. Sure, if if you if you uh, believe the neoliberal uh, economic uh, narrative, that's enough. Uh, because the market will pay you exactly what you're worth. But this this shift of focusing, shifting from opportunity to outcomes, of course we should be focusing on outcomes. That's the whole goal of policy, better outcomes. Um, That's exactly right. I, so I loved I loved that that uh, part of the report. Okay, so democracy and uh, uh, outcomes, uh, what else? Well, with this country, whenever you're talking about race, uh, we have to reckon uh, with, with our country's legacy of white supremacy and violence and racism. Um, and and we, we bring this up through a concept around repair and redress. And a lot of the, um, the, there's a lot of organizations that are doing this, a lot of organizers that are doing this, which is we have to take uh, concrete reparative action uh, to redress the legacy of harm um, that, because it continues to shape our communities today. Um, and what we are seeing right now all across the country is efforts to ban any sort of teaching about right. this history because you learn about this history and realize that the inequality we see today um, is the result in many ways of a failure uh, to repair these past wrongs and past harms. And so uh, that can be through policies such as reparations or through other reparative policies that get at dealing with um, this legacy of repair. Uh, and it also means as a society, you know, as a society, as we move forward, we've got to heal from some of these wounds and you don't do it by ignoring the challenges that we face. Um, and I think there's, there's people who see this as a threat. They, they, they believe any sort of discussion about our country's history is, is somehow unpatriotic and as a result <laughs> is not worth the dialogue we need to have. When in reality, um, it is just... Uh, being honest and truthful. And, and right. I know some people are allergic uh, to the truth and allergic to some honesty, but we have to repair um, that history if we are to move forward uh, in a more equitable healing society moving forward. So so I wonder the the this the whole right wing uh, attack on uh, so-called critical race theory, was this a, a a clever political strategy that they saw these issues being raised and they were just trying to head it off? So the, the right wing has been trying to uh, take any sort of uh, policy that could represent uh, a movement towards progress 
and weaponize it uh, against uh, racial justice and, and weaponize it for racial backlash. So this has been something that they have always done and will continue to do. You know, I actually think that their attacks on critical race theory, their attacks on racial justice, I actually think it, it will backfire. I think it has backfired in many ways. And you look at some of these school board races across the country where they tried to fund, it actually backlash in a lot of these communities. And I know we see uh, the results in Virginia and people think, oh, oh no, now they're talking about critical race theory. And as a result, um, they're going to win and it's inevitable. Well, they only win if you leave them unchallenged and unchecked. I mean, they're ushering in a politics of racial grievance, white grievance uh, to push back on anything uh, doing with racial justice. This has been a tried and true method that they continue to do, uh, but we will only fail if we refuse to address it. Um, I think you can't get caught up in every single uh, attack that they make uh, because you, you will be debating forever if you do that, but you do have to address it and pivot and talk about uh, the issues that matter to people's everyday lives. Um, and these, these so-called culture wars are nothing but uh, just grievance politics. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree with the conclusions of the report. I, I think that, that if, if we pursued these policies and these narratives, we'd all be better off. But does this require short-term sacrifices from, well, white people like me? who have benefited from the current system? So, you know, I certainly think that we have to change our perspective on, on what it means about short-term sacrifices and short-term expenses. I think we all need to recognize our privileges and that we have benefited from a system uh, that continues to exclude far too many people. And in order to make sure that more people are included, more people have prosperity, more people have agency and control over the shape and structure of their lives, um, it requires all of us chipping in. Um, and so for us, that might seem like a sacrifice for some if we view this uh, solely in a zero-sum uh, vision of this. But if we view this in something that is more equitable, more abundant for all of us, I think it helps all of us. Um, and those who are going to have to sacrifice are those at the very top who continue uh, to hoard onto power and wealth uh, at the exclusion of the rest of us. So I don't think it's gonna be much of a sacrifice. I think we have a long way to go, um, but we have to do it together. It's a difficult narrative, you know, to uh, paraphrase Upton Sinclair, you know, it's difficult uh, to get people to understand something when it's in their interest not to understand it. And I've had these conversations recently with, you know, friends, family, neighbors. I've been focusing a lot on housing and housing policy and the, the the tax code, the laws, it's clearly written to advantage uh, white, particularly, uh, you know, people earning over $100,000, you know, Seattle with our million dollar homes. And well, a lot of people I talk to kind of understand all this theoretically, they're not really willing to give up their capital gains exclusion and their home mortgage interest deduction and uh, everything else that has gone into creating this outsized difference between white wealth and black wealth. That's exactly right. And I think that's where, you know, we, we have to understand that when we take these ideas from the abstract into reality, do you, do you mean it? And that means you have to understand the lived experiences of so many people uh, who have been left behind, even from those we profess 
uh, to care about and, and be mm-hmm. uh, in community with. And being in community requires some sacrifice, but we do it together. Do, do you think these changes are possible without a new paradigm and a new narrative that goes along with it? No, I, I don't think these, these changes are possible without a new paradigm or new narrative. I think you could have some changes along the way that are inevitable in terms of um, just some of the, you know, as society grows and as we deal with some of the challenges that we face. But without a newer paradigm, uh, the types of structural changes that we need to make uh, will not be possible. I mean, the facts are that uh, there are some people who are just not committed to democracy um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and try to uh, frame it in a way as if uh, permanent minority rule is the only sort of legitimate democracy. And when you have that paradigm that is now uh, really radicalizing one major political party here, the Republican Party, uh, that is not sustainable. So you need a new paradigm to, to break that up because some people uh, who might not be on board with uh, this racist rhetoric, this horrible rhetoric, uh, still don't see it as a deal breaker uh, and, and will vote for candidates who maybe just don't express those views publicly. And that's a problem. And so we need a new narrative and a new paradigm uh, to get us there. Right. And, and, and key, I think uh, you make this point and that it's, it's not enough just not individually to be racist. <laughs> yes. if we, but we understand that we're benefiting from structural racism, from racist policies. We, we need to be committed to changing those. It's difficult. The last few years, the last uh, you know, six years or so have made me um, really question whether we're going to survive this. And, and it's a balance. And, and I think, um, but you're exactly right. And I think if you look through the lens of history, I, I think there's, you know, people sometimes like to see this inevitable path of progress and, you know, yeah. things are going to be okay. Uh, but the reality is that you, you have to work for it. And there are far right. too many people who have normalized uh, what we see. And so uh, it's, it's, it's understandable to be disillusioned uh, because right. we have not done uh, what it needs to take uh, to move us forward. I want to ask you our uh, final question. Why do you do this work? It's a great question. I, I think mostly, you know, when I think about this work, I mostly think about my family, uh, my, my community. I've got, I've got two young nieces who are uh, five and three, and, and then a newest niece uh, who, who is about eight months uh, now. And I think about the type of future uh, that we want to have uh, for them and uh, for our society. And I think that that future, and based on my own experiences, identity as a, as a Black American in this country, uh, is one in which those who are continuing to be constantly othered and seen as not belonging in the fabric of this society um, are the types of experiences that so many people uh, feel, regardless of their background, regardless of our, their identity. Um, and at the heart of this work um, is really, uh, can we build a community where all of us, regardless of our background, uh, can come together um, for people's future, their prosperity. Um, and, and what is at the heart of this work for me is my family and the type of future we want to build for them. Um, and so regardless of, you know, there are times where I don't have hope and it, it's sad and it can be disillusioning, um, but I also know that um, that is part of this project. Uh, that is part of this fight and this struggle. You can't just uh, wipe your hands off and say that, uh, we've achieved what we've needed to achieve. This is a constant struggle for justice and for rights uh, for all people. And uh, I'm in this fight. Uh, so uh, that's why I continue to do this work. Great. Well, well thanks for the work you do. Um, we'll have a, a link to the uh, 
report in the show notes. Uh, I encourage everybody to, to go read it. I, I think it, it really does tap into, I don't know, the zeitgeist of the moment. I, I'm trying to think of a better term for it. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.